Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the show... Bill Gates on the careening COVID crisis in America. More than a quarter of a million dead since the start, with a few plane loads of people dying here every 24 hours. We need to actually double down on the public health measures. Almost 200,000 new cases on some days, and many tens of thousands in the hospital. Now Thanksgiving gatherings threaten to add serious fuel to this raging wildfire. I'll talk to Gates about the latest on the disease and the vaccines. Also, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, Israel, Yemen. A Trump official says the intent is to set so many foreign policy fires, the Biden administration won't be able to put them out. How will America recover on the world stage? I will ask former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Samantha Power and Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. But first, here's my take. The first time I met Barack Obama, he struck me as different from any other politician I had met. He was smart, well-read, affable, and energetic, but that isn't what made him stand out. It was the way he asked questions. Most politicians ask a question to answer it themselves. After giving you a brief opportunity to respond, they jump in. Well, here's what I think, and proceed to deliver some packaged piece of wisdom that they've doubtless recited dozens of times. But Obama would ask a question to which he actually wanted an answer. He would listen and ask another question. He genuinely wanted to understand how someone else might view an issue. That unusual politician comes through clearly in his new book, A Promised Land. It is well-written, certainly the best-written presidential memoir I have read. Obama has an easy and stylish way with words, describing walking through the West Colonnade of the White House. He says, it was where each morning I felt the first slap of winter wind or pulse of summer heat. Describing a helicopter ride, he writes, I gazed out at the rolling Maryland landscape and the tidy neighborhoods below, and then the Potomac, glistening beneath the fading sun. The most notable feature of the book, however, is Obama's ability to see not just both sides of every issue, but even to empathize with the side in vigorous opposition to his own. He writes that he could understand Hillary Clinton's frustration after a long climb to power to be confronting an upstart challenger for the Democratic nomination. He understands the motivations of Republican leaders like John Boehner and Mitch McConnell and provides a short history lesson. American voters rarely reward the opposition for cooperating with the governing party. He even has a grudging respect for the way the Tea Party gained passionate support and widespread news coverage. 
This quality of fair-mindedness is admirable in anyone, especially one who has risen to the top of a cutthroat profession like politics. And it did give Obama considerable advantages in both domestic and foreign policy. He could see the world with different people's eyes, which broadened his horizons and made him a better negotiator. But his memoir does have one gap, a lacuna in his vision, both as president and as a writer. He devotes little time in the book to the central political dynamic in his years in office, the rise of an enraged, utterly obstructionist, Manichaean opposition to his presidency and to himself personally that ultimately culminated in the election of Donald Trump. A reminder, Barack Obama was a moderate Democrat, conservative in temperament, he acknowledges, and governed as one. For his key economic advisors, he chose Tim Geithner and Larry Summers, widely seen as two of the most centrist, market-friendly experts of the party. He kept on Bush's defense secretary and offered Republican Senator Judd Gregg another key cabinet post, Secretary of Commerce. He sent in thousands more troops to Afghanistan and expanded drone warfare. And his health care plan was modeled on the Conservative Heritage Foundation's old proposal, one that also served as the basis for Mitt Romney's program when he was governor of Massachusetts. This reign of moderation and compromise, however, elicited a reaction from the Republican Party that was furious and vengeful. Obama notes that Gregg, who initially accepted the job as Commerce Secretary, had to back down in the face of activist outrage that he was serving the enemy. Obama recounts the case of Charlie Crist, who as governor of Florida supported Obama's stimulus, which the state desperately needed since its economy was in freefall. His two-second handshake and hug with Obama made Chris so toxic within the Republican Party that by 2010, he had to become an independent and later a Democrat. Despite many compromises, Obama got not one Republican vote for his stimulus or health care bills in the House of Representatives. And opposition to his policy was often couched in blatantly racist ways, such as posters denouncing Obamacare with caricatures of him as an African witch doctor with a bone stuck through his nose. The man who succeeded him in the office, Donald Trump, rose to political prominence by casting doubt on whether Obama was born in the United States. Obama talks about these hysterical reactions to him intelligently, but briefly, never offering deep analysis or passionate anger. He admits he wasn't focused on the ominous undercurrents that were growing in strength. He writes, my team and I were too busy. But it might also be that it would take him into deep and dark waters that are so different from the hopeful, optimistic country he so plainly wants to believe in. America, for him, remains a promised land. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's get right to it with Bill Gates. He was, of course, the co-founder of Microsoft. He is now the co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The foundation has been deeply focused on finding a vaccine for COVID-19, among many other health issues. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So first, give us a sense. Where are we? We see these numbers. They seem to be rising. Obviously, it is an exponential growth uh, issue. But on the other hand, the death rate has come down. Um, 
Hospitalization is rising, but sort of manageable. I'm trying to get from you, you know, how worried should we be about the next two months? Well, we should be very worried about the next six months. Uh, the case numbers are, are going up a lot. And while uh, the age profile of those cases is somewhat younger, which cuts the death rate and the ability to treat, we are going to have just so many cases uh, that the death rate will get up uh, over 2,000 for a lot of this winter period. Do you think that means that we are going to inevitably have to move towards some kind of uh, a second series of real lockdowns? Well, lockdowns are only as good as the adherence to those lockdowns are. And, you know, mask wearing mandates are only as good as people following those. And unfortunately, I don't know, given the fatigue and the politicization and the, you know, confused messages uh, you know, the White House was saying, you know, we've never been in such great shape. What, what is that referring to? It's not, it's not clear. Uh, ideally, people would say, okay, because the medical tools are coming, we can double down on good behavior. You know, try not to have uh, your family be the last death in this pandemic because you're willing uh, to see it through until uh, the spring, uh, which is when the vaccine will really start to cut the numbers down. And of course, the change in weather will be helping us as well. What do you make of the fact that Europe's numbers have also gone up so badly? Because in some cases, they were handling it better than, uh, than the United States was. They, they, seemed, you know, they seemed to manage the first wave better. And now, in many cases, they're doing worse than, than, than the United States is on a per capita basis. What, what conclusion did you draw from that? Well, the entire uh, Northern Hemisphere, wherever you have a lot of cases, is seeing a big winter rebound. And that was expected by a lot of people. The resurgence uh, started in Europe first. They've also put in more effective measures. If you look at their mobility numbers, uh, they've reduced mobility, and so they're starting to see a peak, whereas in the U.S., uh, compliance on mobility is fairly low, and so we're still climbing up, uh, and that climb is expected to continue literally through February, uh, and that's where you get uh, likely uh, over 2,000 deaths per day during this winter period. Um, you, you've been advocating people being uh, more cognizant of these social distancing rules. Um, you know, for example, the issue now is about Thanksgiving. So, I mean, you know, you, you know there are a lot of people who worry that there are uh, elites out there who tell everybody what to do, but then don't follow the rules themselves. So let me ask you, what's your Thanksgiving dinner going to look like? Uh, well, we'll have less family members there uh, than we normally would have. Uh, you know, everybody's always reminding each other about masks. The numbers show that, you know, we could save over 50,000 lives in the U.S. just by getting our, our mask uh, compliance up. Uh, you know, it's not a time when, uh, you know, people will be able to enjoy the Thanksgiving quite the way uh, that they'd like to. I'll have a video connection with a lot of the family members uh, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, but not be with them to, to have turkey together. 
So to me, what, what is still the central puzzle about how the, America has handled this has been why our testing has been so bad. I mean, I understand that with the crazy quilt patchwork of center, state, and local government that maybe, you know, having people all observe social distancing and restrict travel would be hard. But I sort of assumed that we would flood the zone with money so that there would be in, incredibly widespread testing of all kinds, rapid, uh, you know, PCR, everything. And we're, we still are at a, in a situation where testing is just not that great. What explains this? Well, we should be able to raise the capacity, which is about 1.5 million a day. You know, that means in a week, uh, you can test, you know, about two and a half percent of the population. If you're getting the results back within 24 hours and you're testing the right people, that is people who are symptomatic or people who are contacts of those people and making sure it's not just wealthy people able to access repeated testing, then you can start to cut off some infection chains. But the contact tracing effort was not managed at the federal level. Most uh, states have a hard time getting the interviews going, getting the databases working there. So contract tracing is largely a failure. And now we're getting up to a level of numbers where uh, even if it was well managed, it would be very, very difficult. There are new test capacities coming along in almost every category. Uh, some of them you have to be careful, like the strip test, which is good, but it doesn't catch the early cases like the PCR test. And so people are going to be a little confused about when to use which test. We do think uh, in the first quarter we can more than double the number of tests out there. And you know then we'll have a new administration that will make sure you're getting the results back very quickly. They'll you know avoid reimbursing for these uh, out-of-date results and figure out how to layer in the new test type. So uh, testing will be helping us more. Uh, once you have a, a federal set of policies. Stay with us next on GPS, from the problems to the solutions. Bill Gates on the vaccines that have been highly publicized and some of the medicines that have not. And we are back with Bill Gates talking about the pandemic. Bill, how hopeful are you that what we are seeing with the vaccines, which clearly is very good news, the results you know, coming in at 95% when even 70, 75% efficacy would have been good. Do you think this, will, this is a predictor of other, the other vaccines? Are they all going to look, uh, you know, are we going to be surprised on the upside for, with all this stuff? Yes. Almost all the vaccines will work and with very high efficacy levels. The Pfizer vaccine uh, was in the middle of the pack in terms of the antibody solicited. AstraZeneca, that we hope at least the UK will approve before the end of the year, was only a little bit less than that. Uh, Novavax, Johnson & Johnson, uh, you know, even better uh, immunity uh, from those. So we've got now uh, some of the factories in India actually making the AstraZeneca vaccine at risk. You know, we funded that transfer and those factories are very high volume, uh, and those vaccines are very cheap, very scalable. And so uh, the next few approvals, uh, AstraZeneca, Novavax, and Johnson Johnson, will be critical to get to very, very big numbers. Uh, but I'm optimistic that by February, 
uh, it's very likely they'll all prove very efficacious and, and safe. And how worried are you about the the execution, the delivery part of this? I mean, the, the first two ones require that they be kept at cold temperatures and they're double dose. The others are not. But looking at it all in totality, is distribution of the vaccines going to be a huge problem or do you think it can be managed? Yeah, so there's once you get uh, the supply ramped up enough, then you have both the logistics and the willingness uh, to take the vaccine. And I'm hopeful, uh, even though the logistic piece is a bit confused in the U.S. right now, there you know should be a website where you're already uh, indicating your status and the criteria for ranking people. It, you, you get told what your priority code is based on your profession and age. Uh, you know, people should be seeing that. Uh, you want to make sure that uh, you don't waste any of this vaccine. But you know, in a in a slightly imperfect way, I do think the logistics will get solved. I think that uh, there'll be enough people who jump in early on that people see uh, even more evidence of the safety, and that over time we will get to that seventy percent uh, plus level that we need in order to stop uh, the spread of the disease. You know a lot of the people uh, who are advising Joe Biden. Um, do you think that the approach he's taking, do you think the people uh, he, he's, he's appointed uh, are likely to be able to bring about a change in the federal uh, policies uh, and, and that they will substantially improve as a result? Well, it would have been nice uh, to have those people be the ones presenting to the public and the public not feel like the pandemic was being minimized, uh, you know, with a desire to share good news. These are good people. Uh, you know, I, I was really pleased to see the list of people. Uh, it's great the president-elect is making this such a priority. Uh, he'll be able to take the tools that uh, a combination of BART and uh, the private sector work have created now. Uh, he'll be able to participate in the global effort. Uh, to get rid of this disease, so it's not constantly coming back into the country. You know, he'll rejoin the WHO. So there's a lot of things that uh, they will be able to do better. Whether they can get people wearing masks, you know, now that that's almost been politicized, I don't know. Uh, but that will be a, a nice milestone to have. Uh, you know, more than Tony Fauci who are you know, willing to communicate in a clear way and be honest about the bad news uh, you know, in key positions. Before we get to uh, President Biden's term, we, of course, still have a, a ways to go. And I got to ask you this, Bill. I know you don't like to talk about politics, but I, a lot of people listen to you. And as a citizen, are you worried about what is going on right now with, you know, I mean, uh, a situation where the president does seems determined not to uh, not to uh, concede uh, the the election. I, you know, I was always told people didn't like sore losers, and there's a lot at stake in terms of how well our democracy uh, allows peaceful transition. Uh, you know, so I'm hopeful that very quickly uh, the transition efforts are uh, put. Uh, fully activated. Uh, you know, I'm not following the minutiae, but uh, 
it's it's disappointing that uncertainty is created being created where there there should be none. But you're 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 optimistic that the, it, this will be resolved. You know, in other words, how worried are you about where we are now? You know, the idea that, is there long term damage to have people who trust you be told that our electoral system is is uh, flawed. Uh, you know, I know there's a lot of concern about that, but I think we'll have uh, a smooth transition to the president-elect Biden. You have some experience with conspiracy theories. Uh, do you worry mm -hmm. that this conspiracy theory will, will you know, this, this has now been set in motion, the conspiracy about a, a, fr a fraudulent election? Well, I think the U.S. should be proud of the example that typically we sat and tell other countries, you know, to have free and fair elections and that the loser needs to uh, concede and not, you know, try and change the rules or get around the rules in, in, in some way. So the U.S. is a, is a shining light uh, to other countries. Sometimes we don't live up to that, uh, but most of the time we do. On that note, Bill Gates, always a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Next on GPS, a Trump official admitted to CNN that the White House had mounted a sort of scorched earth campaign, making such a foreign policy mess around the world that the Biden team would be hard pressed to clean it up. I will talk to Samantha Power and Richard House about it when we come back. This morning, President Trump addressed a virtual gathering of the G20, the leaders of the 20 of the world's largest economies. For this America first president, the man who has shown his aversion to, if not disdain for multilateralism, it is likely the final summit of world leaders he will take part in before he leaves the White House. Joining me now are two of America's foremost foreign policy thinkers, one from each side of the aisle. Samantha Power was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. for the last three and a half years of the Obama administration. She's now a professor at Harvard. Richard House was director of policy planning in George W. Bush's State Department. He is now the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Sam Power, let me ask you uh, about transitions. You did it both ways. You were you transitioned in from uh, Bush to Obama, and then you transitioned out as U.S. ambassador to the U.N., handing over the reins to Nikki Haley. How bizarre is this situation and how damaging is it where the president is simply refusing to initiate any transition at all? It's thoroughly unprecedented and it is reckless in the extreme. Um, I cannot tell you how useful the briefings were that we in the incoming Obama administration uh, that we received from the outgoing Bush administration. Uh, we learned about, for example, what the status of conditions on the ground were in Afghanistan. That helped inform President, incoming President Obama as he thought about how to launch his Afghan troop review, which was one of the first things he had to do alongside with dealing with, of course, the global economic crisis. We learned about threats to U.S. embassies and diplomatic facilities around the world. That's something the incoming president absolutely has to be prepared for before he takes the helm to have a plan to, to know where you have to watch. We learned, of course, about North Korea's uh, nuclear program. Um, none of the, this information is being available to the president-elect. This is crazy. 
This is in America's interest. It's not about any particular man. It's not about even any particular election. It's about wanting a national security apparatus that is as prepared as possible for what is coming down the pipeline. And it is what we offered the incoming Trump administration. I will say they weren't all that eager to take it because it was a chaotic landscape where there wasn't a lot of valuation of intelligence or expertise in keeping with what would happen in the Trump administration itself. But it is the absolute responsibility of the outgoing team to provide that information and that preparation. Richard, there's another uh, uh, game at foot, which which we referenced at the beginning of the show, which is uh, create as many complications or fires or uh, make it hard to unravel uh, Trump's policies. So, for example, on Afghanistan, there appears to be an effort to essentially complete a withdrawal uh, or a substantial withdrawal. So it's hard to kind of reverse that um, and t- I presumably take a deal with the Taliban. What do you think of that one specifically? Not a lot. I think it's a, a deeply flawed deal. It cut out the Afghan government, which has been our partner for two decades in the first instance. Whatever else it is, Fareed, no one should call it a peace deal. It's an American withdrawal deal. And we're going to leave behind a country still at war and Taliban gaining the upper hand. And the last thing any of us should want to see is an Afghanistan that once again becomes a venue for terrorism. No one should ever forget that the 9-11 terrorists were trained in Afghanistan and it could happen, it could happen again. It, it, this, is, this is avoidable. I just say one other thing though. Yes, the last few weeks have been rough and the next two months are clearly going to be rough. But to me, a lot of these things were in motion long before the transition. The real challenge facing the incoming Biden administration will be essentially four years of a foreign policy that was much more keen to disrupt than it was to build. Uh, on that idea, uh, Sam Pao, the, 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 you know, the idea that Trump has basically just tried to disrupt things, uh, will it be easier for Biden to, to rebuild them? Because you know, there, there will be a world out there that is eager to see an America that is reengaged. You know, does he have a lot of people out there in Europe, even in Asia, rooting for him, you think? Well, I think you see with the speed with which foreign leaders have recognized President-elect Biden uh, as the winner of the election, not waiting for Trump to exhaust his legal remedies, uh, really leaping to get out there, including leaders who work closely uh, with President Trump, like Prime Minister Johnson in, in the United Kingdom. So that's both because they see what actually happened in the election, but also there is an eagerness to move on. Um, there is a great, great fatigue with waking up in the morning to learn about U.S. foreign policy or even U.S. troop posture, even U.S. troop deployments by tweet. Uh, to have not had occasion, for example, uh, in the Afghan context you were just talking about with Richard, to not have occasion to brief your your allies, your NATO allies who've been with you for that two decades on the ground in Afghanistan, to uh, cut and run from Syria uh, when our NATO allies were vulnerable on the ground. Um, there, there is such exhaustion with this. There is such uh, uh, a, a despair, really, over the disrespect with which we have treated people who have fought and died with us. So I think there's a, a, a deep sigh of relief, uh, but that's just the beginning, right? The, the key is how do you sit down together and actually chart a path forward to regain trust to enhance our collective security. Uh, the devil's in the details there. And, and relief alone doesn't, doesn't get you very far. It gets you, uh, again, a chance uh, to build a new framework, to deepen those alliances, to talk about China 
and how democracies stand together against that backdrop. But a lot of hedging has gone on these last four years as other parts of the world, uh, you know, now fear, of course, that someone like President Trump, if not President Trump himself, uh, could get elected again. So that hedging is going to be something that uh, the new administration has to deal with. One place, Richard, that the prime minister seems very pleased with uh, Donald Trump is, of course, Israel. Uh, Pompeo went to Israel, visited uh, West Bank settlements for the first time. Uh, What do you think happens there and what should Biden do? Well, you're right, Fareed. Bibi Netanyahu might be the one democratic ally of the United States, Prime Minister of Israel, who's actually going to regret the political transition here in the United States. This administration has done all sorts of, shall we say, favors for him and his government. I'm just not persuaded it's necessarily a favor for Israel. Israel has thrived as a democratic state and a Jewish state since its birth right after World War II. And prolonged occupation, the failure to create a Palestinian state, seems to me to force Israel sooner rather than later to make a choice between being Jewish or between being democratic. And that really would be a, a, a tragic choice. So don't get me wrong, I am pleased with the normalization between countries like the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. That's a step in the right direction. The Palestinians have been and are a flawed negotiating partner. But to essentially turn a blind eye towards Israeli uh, settlement activity, actually visit a settlement as Secretary Pompeo just did, essentially sends the not too subtle message that the United States is comfortable with this pattern of Israeli behavior. And again, I think in the long term, it's not in Israel's interest. And it once again puts us, I think, in a rather hypocritical position. We're meant to be a peacemaker, but here we seem to be essentially choosing sides. Stay with us. When we come back, I'm going to ask Richard Haas and Sam Power um, what to make of America's democracy promotion efforts abroad, the future of relations with China, all that and much more. And we are back with Samantha Power and Richard Haas. Um, Ambassador Power, you have a terrific uh, essay in Foreign Affairs in which you talk about the, the subtitle of this section that I, that I particularly like is called or like I find striking is America the Incompetent. And what you're talking about is how difficult it is going to be for the United States to lecture others, corral others, when what they are witnessing is a kind of extraordinary display of America's incompetence at being able to handle the pandemic. How deep do you think that problem is? Is that one Biden can, it seems unlikely he can turn a switch and make people think America is, uh, you know, the city on the hill again. Well, it will take time, of course, to restore uh, the valuation of expertise within government agencies, uh, to recruit people who bring, let's say, in the State Department, uh, language expertise uh, and regional expertise, since so many diplomats have fled, same in the environmental agencies and and science-based community within the government. But there's a lot that the commander-in-chief chief can do. And uh, what I highlight, for example, uh, is what can be done in the realm of global vaccine distribution. Once we have managed to vaccinate Americans and in parallel to begin planning for what a global effort would look like. And that has the advantage of being really important for the U.S. domestic recovery, because the idea that our economy can recover 
while the pandemic is raging in parts of the world that our supply chains uh, extend into, that our trade links extend to, that where our citizens have family ties, that's just not going to work. So it's in U.S. interest, and it would showcase America's diplomatic reach, its scientific prowess, and so forth, which, of course, is still very much an American comparative advantage and asset. The other area I think that's uh, something that uh, the new president can do on day one is um, think through how to reform the visa process, uh, the immigration system as it relates to providing educational opportunity for people all around the world. I mean, what better way to showcase, again, American dynamism than to open American universities? Now, that's going to be challenging, of course, until the travel restrictions have abated. But there's much that can be done in the way of signaling, in the way of also seeking to have universities recruit from parts of the world where students have traditionally been underrepresented. Right now, for 20% of African leaders uh, have some educational experience at an American university. And that just, as you know, is worth its weight in gold in terms of long-term U.S. interests and relationships. Richard, and you had a foreign affairs piece. Uh, I guess I should just tell everybody to just subscribe to foreign affairs. But but in that piece, what I was struck by is you you point out a lot of these changes uh, that are happening in the world are predate uh, you know Donald Trump and. Biden is, in a sense, going to go go into a new world. He can't simply restore things back to where they were. What is the big challenge of the kind of changed world that Biden enters? Probably three things, Fareed. One is the, the rise of China as a, a kind of peer competitor. And unlike the Soviet Union during the Cold War, this is a China that is economically integrated in the world. It's not just a political military rival. Secondly, and the pandemic is just one example of it, is the emergence of a whole set of global issues, uh, including climate change, proliferation, terrorism, infectious disease, cyberspace, where there's an enormous gap between the arrangements in place and the response or the adequacy of the response of the, of the, of the world. So simply going back into the World Health Organization or the Paris Climate Accords, while a step in the right direction, in and of itself won't get us that far. And thirdly, and it's tied to COVID, is, is, is President-elect Biden, soon to be President Biden, is going to be, enter the Oval Office at a time this country is as divided and as struck as it has been at any time in our, in our lifetimes, beginning with COVID, but politically divided, uh, racially divided, and so forth. And to persuade Americans that involvement in the world is in their interest, is going to be uh, a, a real challenge on top of the, the actual uh, international challenges themselves. So it all, it all adds up to an extraordinarily daunting inbox for the 46th president. Uh, Sam, I have a minute left, but I just want you to touch on one thing that you say in your foreign affairs piece, which is that China has also been ma making a series of blunders. It's not. It, this is also a case where, uh, you know, the Chinese efforts at spreading their influence have not been as successful as one might think. Yeah, just to say that there's a real opening, right? There were, China had four years uh, to extend its influence in the world. Its favorability ratings in most of the world have, in fact, fallen over the course of this four years as you've seen more and more coercive diplomacy, more of an effort to leverage by China, to leverage its economic investments, uh, to sort of bully countries, uh, to, for example, vote in Ch China's way in international organizations. 
as you've seen, great generosity in terms of protective equipment, masks, and so forth, but then turning around and saying, we need a, a, a statement or an anthem praising us, uh, it just hasn't gone over that well. And there's a lot of concern about debt trap uh, loans and so forth that have left developing countries vulnerable. So no, no more than the U.S. Or, uh, has come off well in the pandemic in terms of showcasing its competence, China has not come off uh, well either. And so you now have these two models competing and a real chance, I think, for Biden to step up and show a different kind of leadership that's values-based, that's collaborative, and that's not extortive in the same way. Ambassador Samantha Power, Ambassador Richard Haas, pleasure to have both of you on. When we come back, I will tell you one surprising thing about the vaccines that you probably don't know. My book of the week, as you might have guessed, is Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land. Many of you will buy it, so my recommendation is really to read it. He tells the story well, paints the characters sharply, and gives you a keen sense of what he was thinking. One of the handful of political memoirs that will live in history. And now for the last look. The announcements of the two successful COVID vaccine trials were lauded as a light at the end of the tunnel, but they should be celebrated for another reason too, the immigrant achievements they underscore. Take the partnership between the American pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and the German firm BioNTech. The leaders of the two companies first connected over their shared immigrant status. Pfizer's CEO is a Greek immigrant to the U.S. and BioNTech's co-founder came to Germany from Turkey as a child. And Cambridge-based Moderna is finding success with a workforce drawn from America's great melting pot. The CEO is French, the chief technology officer is Spanish, and the chief medical officer is Israeli. And Nubar Afayan, the co-founder and chairman, was born in Lebanon to Armenian parents. He moved first to Canada, then settled in the U.S. after earning a Ph.D. at MIT. Since then, he's developed over 100 patents and helped found over 40 science and technology startup companies. And while exemplary, Afayan's success story is hardly unique. A recent congressional report noted that a quarter of all new businesses in America are founded by immigrants. This is especially true in the tech sector, where more than half of all the startups valued at a billion dollars or more were founded by immigrants, according to the National Foundation for American Policy. In Silicon Valley, six out of every 10 highly skilled tech workers was actually born abroad, one study on the region's economy found. So as the pandemic forces us to stay indoors and rely more and more on technology, we are leaning more and more on foreign-born innovation. Whether you order food from DoorDash or Google the nearest testing site, message your co-workers on Slack, or connect with your friends on Zoom, you are using a technology created by an immigrant. It's not just in technology that the pandemic highlighted our reliance on foreign-born workers. Analysis by the Migration Policy Institute found that 38% of home health aides, 29% of physicians, and 23% of pharmacists are immigrants even though foreign-born workers make up only 17% of the overall workforce. And for farm laborers, graders, or sorters, that number jumps to 55%, according to the USDA. In fact, 70% of immigrants work in occupations that the federal government classified as essential during the pandemic. In the midst of a pandemic that touched every continent of the globe, it is fitting that the extraordinary effort to develop vaccines has also been such a multinational project. 
It reminds us of the obvious truth. The best way to fight a global disease is through a global effort. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.